Hello and welcome to Pipettes and Politics. As usual, this is your science policy conversation about all things happening here in Washington that might be impacting you as a scientist or as an interested consumer of science. Uh, my name is Ben Corb. I'm the Public Affairs Director for ASBNB and I'll be hosting you and I am joined by Andre Porter and Daniel Pham. Um, let's do the Twitter thing real quick so if people are interested in connecting with us and following up. I'm on Twitter at BW Corb. Andre, you are on Twitter at A.N. Porter underscore. And Daniel. I'm DFAM20. And uh, this is going to be, um, we're going to be covering a lot of ground on this particular uh, podcast. We're going to talk first about appropriations, the, the fiscal year process, where we are and those sorts of things. And then we're going to go in our next segment into a little bit of a deeper dive um, over some of the bigger meetings and events that have been happening, particularly in the past 10 days. And so that is uh, at the NIH the advisory council to the director met and had some really interesting discussions on the NGRI, the Next Generation Researcher Institute policy, which we've been watching and monitoring for quite some time. And the National Academies had uh, some interesting work done on sexual misconduct in the scientific community. And so we wanted to give those their due. Um, and so we'll be jumping into that in a little bit as well. So before we do that, though, we wanted to get into appropriations, the dollars and cents of things. This is, as always, a slow-moving train and has lots of pieces that are going along. And let's be honest, we're going to be dealing with this in September and October as a continuing resolution because that's how this all works. But um, the numbers that we get from uh, the House and the Senate and how they want to fund scientific agencies at least allows us to take a temperature on how Congress views science and the, and the funding of science and, and how the science in the, in the community is being viewed. So um, this past week, the Senate released its numbers for both the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy, in which there's the Department of Energy's Office of Science. Those are a couple of the agencies that we pay attention to. So, Andre, what did the Senate mark for NSF look like? So, the Senate mark for NSF um, is at $8.1 billion. That's So, as a frame of reference, the funding for FY18 was $7.9 billion, which is, so the Senate is offering an increase. The House um, last month offered $8.2 billion. So the NSF is getting more of an increase than it's seen in um, recent years. Of note, and the number that the Senate proposed is that there is language for removing um, managing of the Antarctic um, research vessels to the MRFC program or the MRFC budget and the plus-ups that would have been managed out of the Antarctic program, which is a part of the NSF's research and related activities number um, State. So they got a plus up in RNRA and they also got a plus up in MRFC, which is great if you're at the NSF. The, the numbers likely to or the, the increase is likely to go to their big ideas because that was included in the budget justification for FY19. Um, but it's positive. The NSF has been flat for years. So this is, this is a positive movement up. And how did this compare with the House? Has the House released the its House funding was, level? Yes. Yeah, so the House was $8.2 billion. So the House proposed around a 5% increase. The Senate proposed a 4% increase, so they're around the same. So they're comparable to right. each other. Um, so that, that's good from a negotiating standpoint as we get later in the game. It's good that the House and Senate seem to be on roughly the same page as it relates to this. Right. Um, Daniel, what about the Department of Energy? So the Department of Energy has also seen um, an increase in their budget from FY18. So the House 
released their numbers, and it's uh, 340 million above FY18 numbers at 6.26 billion, and the Senate numbers are at six, uh, 400 million increase from FY18, which is landed at around um, 6.86. So there's a 60 million dollar difference that will need to be ironed out uh, during conference. So it, it overall looks good, also. That's great, and. Um the, ho- um, the House this week uh, or last week released its appropriation for the NIH, the Labor um, HHS appropriation. And there was um, not a surprise, but there was a, an increase to the NIH uh, around $1.2, $1.3 billion increase um, for some of the institutes that we pay a lot of attention to for the uh, National Institute for General Medical Sciences. Um, the House proposed an increase of $33 million for the National Cancer Institute, $471 million increase um, for, let's see, what do we? What else do we like? Um, NHLBI, uh, $40 million increase. So um, really all of the institutes, as I'm looking down on the list here, um, sees an increase um, to their budget from the House. And so that's exciting. Um, it's um, we're happy to see that. We're happy to see continued support. Um, the Senate has not yet released their number for appropriations for next fiscal year. However, uh, there was a quote uh, in the news this week from Senator Roy Blunt, who is the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, and he has committed or hinted that uh, the NIH support from his committee would be higher than that of the House. I, I don't know. I guess they like being in a contest. Um, the Senate's commitment tends to be higher. Um, and um, I think we're speculating perhaps another $2 billion increase to the NIH's budget, which would be impressive to be sure. Um, as a reminder, this is very similar to how this played out in the, current, in the FY18 fiscal process. Um, the Senate increased things by about $2 billion, if I'm remembering correctly. The House proposed about a billion dollar increase, if I'm remembering correctly. And the final continuing resolution that we're existing under now provided a $3 billion increase to the NIH. I don't know how, how that averaged out, but it worked out, and we're very happy about that. So um, we're going to continue to monitor these things. Um, I do know um, today, which is uh, Friday the 22nd, there are, um, I think there's a markup going on in the full committee. Um, so we're going to hear more and be watching kind of what kind of discussions happen in that. Um, I do think some of those discussions, however, are going to be focused on the family separation policies that exist and whether the uh, labor HHS is being provided the resources necessary to um, respond to the president's initiatives and the president's policies. So um, that is what we're watching on the dollars and cents front. Um, keep posted here. Um, and we're going to be watching it and seeing kind of at what point does Congress um, stop the theater and just doing continuing resolution and just fun things. Um, we're probably just as a reminder to everybody we're probably looking at a continuing resolution until at least December or January when there may be a new Congress seated um, after the election process. That's what the historical trends have been. Um, But we're going to watch it, and we're going to be watching it for you. So um, that's the dollars and cents, and I think that's what a lot of people are interested in. So we wanted to just give you where that is in the snapshot. We'll be updating that as things go along. And if you want up-to-the-minute updates on where things are, you can check out our blog, policy.asbnb.org where we have an appropriations update 
uh, widget or box or whatever we want to call it, um, where you can find kind of the up to the minute updates on where things are and you can track things for yourself. So um, with that, we're going to take a little bit of a break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about National Academies and the ACD. This is Pipettes and Politics and we will be right back. Like this, but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. Welcome back to Pipes and Politics. This is Ben. Sandra Porter. Daniel. Thank you for continuing to join us. Now we're going to get into a little bit of some of the exciting high-level meetings that have been happening here in Washington. We're going to try to bring you into those rooms and kind of hear what the discussions have been. So first, Andre. Andre yes. um, is our NIH correspondent. How about that for an additional <laughs> title? Um, and, and he was at the he was at the ACD meeting, which is the advisory council to the director of the NIH. And part of the discussion there was the beginning of the discussion of the draft recommendations that relate to the next generation researcher initiative right so yes that's, tell us how'd it go it went fine it went fine it went it was the recommendations were lackluster but that was to be expected or what i expected if you listen to the last episode i expected it to be cynic yes i'm a cynic <laughs> um really so to give some some context a year ago the nih released a grant support index that got shot down for various reasons. They reformed into the Next Generation of Researchers Initiative, developed a policy that also got shot down for a number of reasons. Um, and now their, their approach now is to roll it out in a slow manner. So now they have draft recommendations um, that they are presenting to the community. There's no formal uh, RFI or request for information for the, from the community, but they do, they are taking um, uh, feedback from the community. So, the the major themes of the NGRI recommendation or the draft recommendations that they released are um, one to modify the original NGRI definitions and policies. So, this refers to the early uh, stage investigator definition, as well as what an at risk investigator is, and I'll talk about that a little bit after this. Um, the second one is to develop methods to identify and support at-risk investigators and early-stage investigators. Uh, then there is to enhance ESI, or early-stage investigator diversity, in a meaningful and sustainable way. They want to optimize workforce stability by more clearly defining the target distribution of investigators across career stages, which I think is interesting. Um, and they also want to assess productivity through a multifaceted approach. So the <clears throat> there a few of these themes or recommendations are, I think, of note. So with the modification of the NGRI definitions, for early stage investigators, the NIH has used a criteria of a person who has received a degree in their 10 years, in between receiving the degree and 10 years from uh, receiving funding. They're modifying it, or they're suggesting a modification. I think I should underline that these are all suggested recommendations. This is, these are not mandated policies. Um, but they're modifying that and they're, they're changing, they're suggesting a new definition for ESIs. Either an ESI is someone who is 12 to 15 years from receiving their degree, 
and this partly comes from the National Cancer Institute, who sees a, they see a, a older, not an older, that's a different way of phrasing it, but for their investigators, early stage tends to be 12 to 15, and they want to encapsulate everybody. Another definition or another suggestion, suggested definition um, is an investigator who just received an independent investigator um, uh, uh, position at an institution. So they, they, they've graduated, they just got their first faculty position or associate professor, professor position, and that's the, the suggested um, definition for that. Uh, also, I think of note is the optimizing workforce stability. So there was some discussion about if we continue to support everybody at every level, then there may be an issue with having a top uh, a system that is lopsided for how supporting and does the NIH actually have the capacity to support every researcher that has ever gotten their degree in biomedical sciences, et cetera. So they're trying to figure out a, a way, they're trying to assess and they're, they're, they mentioned that they're going to do some kind of um, some assessment for how to figure out if what the stable state for the biomedical research enterprises? What's the what's a good number of investigators moving through the pipeline of investigators coming out of the pipeline becoming I independent think, uh, investigators? Isn't aren't we ready for that? I mean, isn't that what so much of this is? So much of this is about is how many scientists should we be or can we be supporting, right? So that we can begin fighting for the resources that are necessary to feed that yeah, army. I think the problem is nobody wants to say nobody wants to be the hard line and say this is how many we should be supporting in it. Right. Nobody everybody. wants to say you are the last 10 on the list and exactly. you don't get in. Right. Exactly. Which sure. I, it's, it's great that they're looking at that. What comes out of it, I don't know. I'll be a cynic for that as well. Um, the last one is assessing productivity, I think is of note. Early, last year and when they were coming out with the GSI and the NGRI initial policies, there was a lot of focus on research productivity and this research productivity score. They're now stepping back and saying, well, that wasn't a popular decision. That wasn't a popular way of looking at who should be supported. So let's look at different um, different methods for assessing people's value, so to speak. And I, they didn't use value, so, but it's essentially what's the value of this researcher. One of the things they've, thought, they've discussed is maybe looking at how many students are being supported in addition to how much they're producing. Uh, in research, another thing that they they talked about was um, using only a certain number of years, so recent productivity, and not a. And the idea for that is they don't want researchers who are relying on their their years of experience or their years of productivity that is not apparent today um, to influence how how they're supported um, into the future. It, it's interesting. Again, these are draft recommendations. These are interim recommendations. They plan to put out their official recommendations, their, their kind of final draft in December. Um, Mike Lauer and, uh, and uh, Francis Collins mentioned that they're already doing stuff at the, the National Science Fund, I mean, excuse me, the National Institute of Health um, in support of the next generation of researchers and uh, at-risk investigators. So Right now, they're evaluating their current suite of grants, their current suite of proposals that have been received, and they're identifying for each institute which investigators, one, are within a certain time frame for their draft recommendation for what an ESI or early stage investigator are, and they're submitting that information to 
uh, uh, institute directors so that they can make decisions on if they have extra money, they can help support some of these early stage investigators. They're doing the same thing for at-risk investigators. So an at-risk investigator, based on what they're using as their definition, is someone who is on their last grant and they're at risk of losing funding within the year or within the next uh, fiscal year. So they're also doing a kind of a, a swath assessment of who are the investigators being supported right now, developing lists and sending those to institute directors and leadership to, to if they have money so that they can support them. So they, they kind of touted that towards the end is we're, we're not just waiting for these recommendations to be approved by Congress. We're also doing some things at the moment. And that's kind of the NGRI discussion. So I, I remember, so ASBMB also uh, provided recommendations to the group. Were, were recommendations taken into consideration? What happened with that? Yeah, so they mentioned during the presentation that they had been listening to the stakeholders. There was no official RFI that was released for their current um, round of NGRI recommendations. They mentioned they had been listening to the stakeholders. One of the groups that were listed on their PowerPoint slide was the ASBNB. We had a number of recommendations that we put out. Um, the They really... I'll take credit and say ASBNB. <laughs> ASBNB fed into two of the recommendations, part uh, one, the at-risk definition, and the ESI definition. So we, um, in our recommendations, we had uh, recommended definitions, recommended solutions, so how what programmatically the NIH can do. They haven't really fleshed out any programmatic recommendations, so that we may see that later on. Um, but yeah, so we had a couple of our things get soaked up into the ether. And so I think, that, look, the fact that they were responsive to what we had said um, and, you know, some of it was considered, that underscores the why they're not having an RFI about these recommendations, right. which is the community should be willing to respond, right? We should be, you should, we should not be looking for the NIH to ask for our opinion, but we should be proactive in providing our opinion. Is, right. that, is that accurate? That's 100% accurate. And is it also accurate that we are working on developing a tool that can help to kind of coalesce those opinions? That's 100% true. So we're going, to, we're going to develop a tool, as you mentioned, that lists our recommendations, lists what the NIH is proposing, and it's going to allow the community to kind of feed that into us, and we'll be able to distribute that to the NIH broadly. So it's kind of a ASBNB RFI for the NGRI so that we can help the, N the NIH be more better informed of what the community is thinking. Right, and you should watch the policy.asbb.org space for, for that. Right. Um, and part of the reason for doing this, one, is to, to give, um, you can look at the, you can look at our blog and you can see kind of the history of where this conversation has gone from grant support index to NGRI to ASBMB's recommendations. Um, we would love to just help to bundle your your opinions and send them in and then monitor what whether your opinions are being listened to and kind of report back but also maybe your um maybe you want to anonymously so you know maybe you're concerned that if you're critical of the nih your grant might get pulled away from you or something it's not going to happen but you know maybe you're worried about that you know we can help you we can help we can help be a resource for you so you can still have your opinion heard. So so we want to provide an, an opportunity for people to have their voice heard in the process, and so that's what we're going to be doing. So the bottom line is we've got draft, we've got draft recommendations to review and chew on. Um, we've got time to try to influence if we don't like where things are going, um, and, and we're going to keep keep doing that and keep monitoring things. Is that, is that accurate? That's, that's where we are? Yeah, that's where we are. All right. That's, that's great. Thank you for going to that really very riveting and exciting meeting. <laughs> it was actually... 
kind of exciting. It's better than you thought it'd be. Yes, it's getting better. Yeah, um, Daniel. Daniel went to the National Academies, uh, where the National Academies released their report on sexual misconduct. Um, Daniel, what did you learn there? Right. So. The National Academies has been spending a few years now developing a report on sexual harassment in science uh, and came out last week. And so as we know, many people in academia, men and women, especially women, um, in historically male-dominated fields you know, like science have experienced sexual harassment from their superiors and coworkers. So the panel uh, provided 15 recommendations for the science community, you know, from individual scientists to uh, academic institutions uh, to take up and help curb sexual harassment. So one big recommendation they had was for academic communities to create an inclusive and diverse environment to prevent sexual harassment from happening in the first place. So that includes hiring more women and minorities, uh, promoting civility training programs, and developing policies that prevent behavior uh, constituting sexual harassment versus concentrating so much on the attitude which is really interesting. Um, the report also recommended that the uh, institutions better support individuals that have experienced sexual harassment uh, and increase informal reporting mechanisms in ways to prevent retaliation uh, by accusers, uh, or retaliation by those who were accused. Um, moreover, the report also calls on members of the scientific community uh, from, again, individual scientists to federal agencies to create a safe and inclusive workplace, uh, recommending that these institutions address gender harassment seriously, and that includes behaviors like exclusions, hostility, and microaggressions that um, are large contributors to scientists leaving academia. So, you know, if you've been following Twitter, <laughs> social media, you may know that the National Academies has also been taking heat for not doing enough. Uh, within their own ranks. So there's been a petition circulating um, for the National Academies to remove members uh, from um, the, their prestigious uh, mm -hmm. rankings um, who were found, found guilty of sexual harassment. Um, so 4,000 people have signed up uh, on this petition. So during the report release event, uh, National Academies Executive Officer Bruce Darling addressed the question of whether or not they would remove scientists um, who are known sexual harassers. Uh, he stated that as a 155-year-old institution, the lengthy process of changing bylaws may take more than a year. So in the meantime, they're looking at other mechanisms short of membership removal um, to address sexual harassment within their own membership. And these mechanisms are a little unclear. They didn't really spell it out. And so the irony is kind of, you know, that the National Academies report is urging institutions older than them to take bold actions, whether, whereas they themselves have been seemingly reluctant to do so. Right. And so uh, let's go, um, let's go silver lining, which is that the National Academies, um, and I think, I think it's fair to say the scientific community across the board, um, is beginning to wrap its hands around the fact that there are there are problems, right? I mean, the, 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 the laboratory is not always the most um, warm and inviting opportunity for people of, a, of diverse backgrounds. And whether, um, whether that's, uh, whether you're male or female, whether you're a minority, whether you're, you're gay or straight, there are, just like any other workforce, there are, um, 
unfortunate examples and opportunities of, of kind of improper behavior. And, and, and scientific integrity, I think maybe part of this discussion is, is that scientific integrity is more than just whether you're doctoring you know, the photos in, your, um, in, in the paper that you're submitting, um, but it's also how you're treating the people in the lab and whether it's a, a fair and equal opportunity for everyone in the lab. Is that kind of a fair way to say that we're, the community is beginning to recognize and realize? Yeah, I think the, the first step is to admit that there's a problem, and I think we're definitely there. We're definitely doing that. Yeah. Um, now, Andre, I believe at the ACD meeting, the issue of sexual harassment and misconduct came up during that discussion. Is that accurate? That is accurate. <clears throat> it did come up during the discussion. And, um, and what did the NIH have to say about the issue? What, what did the NIH have to say? Um, so... I'll take a deep breath because I want to be fair to the NIH. Um, we think the NIH didn't say enough, I if anything. If anything, I don't think the NIH said anything at all. So the NIH, during the ACD, they had a sexual harassment, which was shocking to many because the NIH is kind of taking the back, the back seats of the discussion going around about sexual harassment in STEM and sciences. Um, but it was, it was kind of promising to see it on, on the agenda prior to the meeting happening. Um, but during the meeting, their presentation on sexual harassment essentially was, look at how great the National Academies report is. We're not really doing anything for extramural grants, anything new. There's no new guidance to, to be released for us. There's no new uh, regulations. There's no new uh, way that we're holding institutions and researchers' feet to the fire on this issue. And then look what we're doing internally. They're doing a ton of things internally. They're creating a... a electronic safe space where people can anybody can submit their issues or their um, their complaints about being harassed uh, they're doing a lot for to increase inclusion and diversity within their ranks but extramurally most of the presentation it was a couple of slides that they they focused on extramural grants uh, were were kind of harking back to well we support title IX and we support civil rights uh, legislation or Years ago, we put forth a policy notice that mentioned that we are we support inclusive environments at conferences. Or if you change your PI, if an institution changes the PI, then the NIH should be informed. Should is not, I don't think, verbiage that should have been used. Also, there is no if the PI is removed based off of a harassment allegation or conviction, then this is why we should be informed. It was. If the PI has changed, we need to know because we need to change paperwork because we have a new PI. Yeah, and it's it was it's disheartening to see then I take that stance. So disheartening, particularly when you can compare the NIH to what the National Science Foundation has done in the same space. Right. So the National Science immediately the National Science Foundation put forth a uh, policy notice saying that they're taking this seriously. They're developing. Um, ways for people to uh, engage the, the agency on anything dealing with sexual harassment. They immediately put up, well, not immediately, but very quickly put up a tool for people to submit complaints, whether they're allegations or convictions, they will investigate them. They are being extremely proactive there. They solicited the community, ASBNB sub submitted recommendations for their uh, policy as it's developing. They're holding a roundtable next month that I'll be there representing ASBNB for um, to talk about sexual harassment and talk about the issues and the policy that's being developed and get get the meat from the people. It's, it's a stark difference 
than what NIH is doing um, for their extramural grants. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Sure. And we're not going to editorialize on them. Gotcha. We're just going to say fact or not a fact. Who leads the National Science Foundation? France Cordova, a female astrophysicist. Okay. And the director and deputy directors of the NIH include how many women? None. Okay. Just wanted to throw those two facts out there, and we'll just leave them there and move on. Um, I think there's... This has been an interesting discussion. I think that the issue of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in science is just beginning, right? It's the, the, the hashtag MeTooSTEM, which was kind of the, mm -hmm. the Twitter response and the Twitter discussion space, um, is newer than the hashtag MeToo. And, and there are, I think, um, federal institutions, you know, kind of um, the the old stalwart institutions are figuring out how to navigate through this space, particularly because kind of the male-dominated aspect of science um, maybe makes change harder to recognize or to realize. Right, and I'll bring up an anecdote from the ACD during this discussion. So after the presentation, as usual, they have discussions amongst the committee. And the point of, of the granularity between annoyance versus harassment was brought up, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a fair point, but that doesn't mean you do nothing. And then there was a suggestion from somebody on the ACD to maybe submit a uh, like a policy, uh, not a letter, but a, a, a letter to not a pamphlet, but like a letter to university presidents, kind of a policy statement or like a, a position statement, so to speak, for where the NIH sits on sexual harassment and reporting these things as it results, and it was shot down immediately as presidents don't want to receive emails from NIH, and it's like you're funding them, so why would they not care to read what you have to say that may affect their funding? Um, right. And then they're taking the stance of we fund institutions and not PIs, but they always like to to uh, to tout that they're supporting investigators. And you can't really have it both ways. Where you're, when it comes to funding and when it comes to actually holding people's feet to the fire, you support that you you're funding the institution. But when you want to tout how much how, what impact that you have, you're supporting investigators. And and again. Um Statement of fact, uh, how many members make up the ACD, do you know? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but the majority of them are men. I think I'm, I'm looking at the list online, just as we're talking here, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight members of the ACD, not including the NIH director, mm -hmm. um, and um, it looks like there's one yeah. female on the ACD, yeah. and eight men. Just, so just again, no, um, that, we're not editorial. We wouldn't edit. Why would we editorialize? Not editorializing. Just, just pointing out a fact. So, Frank Collins, Doctor Dr. Collins, Collins, he mentioned at the at the onset of the presentation, mm. which is kind of it was kind of hilarious to me. Recognition. Recognition that the ACD is not diverse when it comes to gender and other issues, and we're really looking forward to this and going to make movements towards this. He could have mentioned this during his director's remarks mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning. He could have mentioned this at the last ACD meeting, but before the sexual harassment, probably one, realized he wanted to be like, oh, by the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we're doing something. Well, again, I mean, we're three guys talking about this. Oh, that is in, very true. In my office. So, um, fair. So, anyway, this is, look, there's a lot of, um, 
lot of places to dig in on this, and I think this is just the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. Um, it is, however, the end of the conversation for us right now. Um, but we're going to continue watching it. So uh, we're going to take a little break. I want to get back on the other side. I want to let the, our listeners know about some exciting guests that we're going to be having coming up in the next few weeks. And, um, and then we'll close it up. So this is Pipe Bats and Politics, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. You have been... I got Andre. Daniel here. Um, and thank you for listening. Um, we wanted to close out just by talking about one of the, a recognition that we find ourselves fascinating, but there's probably other really fascinating people here in science policy that you might be interested in hearing from. And it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, they're not going to be as entertaining, but they'll be probably more informative. Um, so we have, uh, we're excited to let, to let you know that we have some summer guests lined up. So um, in addition, th these are three that we have, uh, and we're um, in process of, of locking in some other ones. But I want to let you know, um, we're going to be talking with Howard Garrison. Howard is the Director of Public Affairs at FASAB, the Federation for American Societies for Experimental Biology. And um, FAS uh, Howard has been doing science policy and science advocacy for... Um, more than 20 years now, and we're going to have an interesting discussion on kind of what he's seen over the course of his career, um, how science policy has changed and how advocacy has changed, um, where he thinks we've done really well, and where he thinks we could do better. And so I think his perspectives would be really interesting, and so we're excited to have him on. We will also be having Mary Woolley on from Research America, where we'll be talking about the importance of scientists getting involved in advocacy. Um, she has been advocating for this for a very long time, and she's, uh, you know, really a, a leader um, um, in the community, and so we're excited to have her on board. And we're also going to be talking with uh, AAAS President Rush Holt, former member of Congress, where um, I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion on the issue of scientists running for Congress and um, those that have been successful and those that haven't been successful, kind of what the skill set he brought to the table had that made him be successful in his run for Congress and and, and being uh, a member re-elected several times, um, but also um, what would be helpful and not helpful. And we also have um, an interview with Sam Britton where we'll be talking about grassroots advocacy and how students can get involved in advocacy. So we have a really exciting kind of menu of guests and we're going to be including and diversifying that as we go along. So we hope you will stick around and be a part of that. If there are people that you're interested in listening to, um, you can email us um, publicaffairs at asbnb.org or you can send us a tweet. Uh, you can use hashtag pipettes and politics. Um, we're kind of excited about that opportunity. And then also don't forget we've been, we've had guests before. Uh, Matt Hurrigan from AAAS Emily Lubowicz from the Coalition for Health Funding and NDD United. Um, so there are other people that we've talked to and we're going to continue this process going along. So um, we are running out of time, and so we're going to cut this off, but we were, we're excited to get back to our regular recording schedule and um, excited to keep the conversation going. Andre, anything in closing? Nope. Great. Daniel? <laughs> I'm good. Have a good one. All right, great. Thank you, everybody. This is Pipe Bets and Politics, and we will hear, we'll, we'll, we'll be out here next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>